and said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us. And just as every Sunday, just as every week, uh, the only way it's going to make any sort of sense for our lives, the only way it's going to impact and change us is if you do that work, God. So we ask that you would do that work. We ask that you would step into our lives this morning. That you would, by your spirit and by your grace, chip off the hard parts of our hearts. And since this is work that only you can do, uh, we're coming to you to ask you. Would you do this? Would you be with us? Would you help us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who made the mess? Me. Billy did. Come here, I want to talk. Were you throwing stuff over the side? It's sugar, you know that, right? <laughs> Justin! What are you doing? Mommy's gonna be very upset. <laughs> yeah, you. Look what you guys did. Callie, what did you do? What did you guys do? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Why did you let her do that to you? Because I didn't see it. You <laughs> What are you doing? Huh? Tatum, what happened to you? What were you doing? You don't know? What are you doing? What are you doing to Addison? Uh -uh. What did you do with your stickers, Brayden? You notice one thing that none of those kids said? I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um, I turned from my ways, Mom, and I will not do this again. Nope, none of those kids said that. Like that one kid said, I don't know what happened. And he's got marker all over his face. Like, I don't know, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. Um, but here's what we do not see um, that is essential to our faith, to following God by faith. Uh, faith means repentance. Faith means, uh, following God by faith means that we repent of our sins. In fact, the very first word out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his ministry is repent. <clears throat> Why? Uh, Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back 
that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So, all right, refreshing, sins blotted out, let's do that for sure. Uh, that our sins may be blotted out, that we may be re- refreshed. Yes and amen. Let's be all about this thing. Let's be all about repentance. And since we are sinful sinners who sin every second, um, our entire lives should be marked by repentance. Over and over and over again, if we trust God, if we follow God by faith, our lives should be marked by repentance. So what we have here in Genesis 20 is God calling two men to repentance. One man repents well, and one really doesn't repent well at all. He actually doesn't even repent. Um, But we'll see a good example from both. And so we'll see just three key points. God calls us to repent, what repentance is not, and what repentance is. God calls us to repent, what repentance is not, and what repentance is. So God will not leave us alone in our sin, since we are those sinful sinners who sin. He will not leave us alone in that. He will show us exactly what it is, why it is we should turn. How uh, He will give us a way to be cleansed and refreshed. And we'll see from our boy Abraham just a, a terrible example of repentance. And then one from a, a polytheistic Abimelech. It's actually a really good example. Because, and it's really good to know, because what is repentance really? Is it saying I'm sorry? Is, it, is that enough? So let's just take a look at the first one. God calls us to repent. Take a look at verse 1. From there, so we can ask the question, from where? Uh, from, so essentially from the top of the hill where Abraham just saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God just came down to destroy this city because of the outcry against it from innocent people uh, who were being affected by the great sins of the, of the people that were living there. So he gives the city a chance to turn and run multiple times, but only three people eventually make it out of the entire valley. Abraham has just seen the end result of fire and sulfur falling from the heavens down to a city where his nephew lived. And it's doubtful that he even knows if his nephew's alive. So he journeys on away from this place. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So to help us just see a little bit more, Um, Here's a map of what Abraham has done so far in Genesis 12. uh, God calls him to faith over here. Um, So he calls him to go, and so he leaves his family at the top of the line over here. All the way through all of this wilderness where he experiences a severe famine pretty close to the bottom of the line over here. Where he then goes to sin, um, where he goes in sin to Egypt. He turns back from Egypt down there, and then he goes to this little green spot on the map where he first worshipped his God. I don't know if... Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so he's at the little green spot, and the green spot is just a familiar place for him. Like, it's a, it's a safe place for him. He knows that place. Um, and then last week in chapter 19, we saw God destroy everything around the red spot, which is that one um, at the bottom of that water. Um, He just destroyed everything around the red spot. So Abraham left the green spot because I'm sure he could just see the smoke and the fire and he goes and he's sojourning in the land of the blue spot. You know, technical terms. Um, And this is the land called Gerar where there's this huge kingdom. Uh, So we'll most likely feel some deja vu here here as well um, as this is almost word for word what happens in chapter 12 um, when Abraham and his family go into Egypt. 
In chapter 12, Abraham's afraid that the Egyptians will kill him because his wife is too pretty. Um, and so he lies to them all and tells them that she's her, she is his sister. So let's see if our boy has learned any lessons. Spoiler alert, nope. <laughs> Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Oh boy. Uh, but we can't totally fault him here. Like this, this really would be a scary situation. Like, so let's just put ourselves in his sandals here. You've left your home. <laughs> You've left your home of 75 years to go and dwell in a land that God has not given to you. And he promises to give you a son that he has not given you. And it's been almost 30 years since he gave you those promises. You were constantly dwelling in tents in the desert and, and wilderness on the outskirts of cities and nations that can destroy you in a second. Not only that, you keep hearing bad things about, about uh, your good-for-nothing nephew, um, and you've already rescued him once. You went to war for him, essentially, um, and you brought him back, and then you just witnessed fire and sulfur falling from the sky to destroy an entire valley of cities, the same cities where your nephew and his family lived. So you know that you're just really sad. Maybe you're even holding out hope that he would return one day. And you'd have a great little reunion party, but now none of that's going to happen. So you move. You're tired of seeing the smoke day after day that reminds you of your nephew's sure death. So you turn in an opposite direction and just go. Then you come to a huge city with a king and all sorts of people, and you don't know anything about these people. This could be another city like Sodom. He doesn't know. So when Abraham lies and says, she's my sister, please don't kill me for her, we get it. He's tired. He's scared. He's sad. He's confused. You know he's having a hard time sleeping. He just wants to live. It is sinful because Abraham is not trusting God and he's giving up his own wife's dignity to save his own neck. Um, but we feel for the guy. We really do. It makes sense. But he continues, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this, this totally seems normal. Like, it seems like something that the king would just do. And culturally speaking, kings would do this all the time. Uh, they would do it with nations that were rich and wealthy, which Abraham's uh, family, like, they were really wealthy after they left Egypt. They had a bunch of things. Um, and so they would do this. They would marry. They would just grab a woman, and they would marry into the family so that they could get some of the wealth. It was just what they did. It was, just, it was a strategic play. Um, he would just add this woman to the other women that he had. It really wasn't about the women so much as it was about the wealth. Um, however, this is not the right thing to do, as we'll see in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So what we don't realize just right off the bat is that there's a disconnect happening, um, and it's on Abimelech's side. He thinks that God just means uh, that he's taken her as his wife, which is to say uh, conjugated the marriage. But God knows that this has not happened. He's the God of the universe. Uh, as we'll see here in a little bit, he even says it. But the issue was never with that. God's words were, because of the woman you have taken, which is literally kidnapped. Uh, so this was a sin. And later in, in God's words, in his statutes in the Mosaic law, Moses would write all of these laws from God. And one of them is... Whoever steals a man and is found in possession of him shall be put to death. So this is, a, this is a sin. But in the meantime, since God has not written the laws uh, through Moses, uh, God came to warn Abimelech in a dream, which was totally normal. Like this, was a, uh, this was actually the way that, uh, that God at this time would speak to their people. Um, 
and the Gerarites were a polytheistic nation. And so that, that was the way that their God spoke to them. Um, so it's great. Like God inter- interrupts that. He's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to you even better in this way. Um, and he comes by dreams. He tells him straight up, hey, you're going to die because of your sin. And when he tells him that he's a dead man, it doesn't mean just his life. It means his entire lineage is going to stop with him. Like you will have nothing. His line will come to a dead stop. And the biggest blessing of the ancient world was a lineage. Like that's why they had so many wives. That's why they had just a harem of women so that they could have just a bunch of kids so that their line would be amazing. That was their blessing. But God says, uh, this sin will strip everything from you because you kidnapped this woman. So Abimelech thinks for whatever reason that God doesn't necessarily mean that but another thing, which is why the text says, uh, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He knows that he hasn't done anything physically with Sarah, so he argues the point. And he says, Lord, which is funny, too, because it's a generalized Lord. Like, he doesn't even know which Lord he's talking to. He just says, Lord. Um, he says, Lord, will you kill a whole people who are innocent? And he goes on to explain his point that God was, wasn't even talking about. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. When he says integrity, he means... Uh, like the word literally translated as perfection. Um, so he just told God, I'm perfect. My hands are clean. I have done no wrong. Verse six. Then God said to him in the dream, I think it's kind of cool to realize like we're still in a dream in this moment. Um, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Like this is amazing and funny and awesome. Like Abimelech is arguing a point that God did not even bring up. I mean, he's saying, well, I'm perfect in this way. And God agrees with him. He's like, yeah, you were perfect. That was me. I did that in you. Um, That was because of me. You were perfect in that way. I kept you from sinning against me in that way. I did not let you touch her. You were perfect because I made you perfect. Essentially, sit down, son. Um, Now let's get to the actual issue at hand in verse 7. Now then, now that we've cleared that, return the man's wife because you took her from him. That was the issue here. But why? Why should Abimelech do this? For he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. If you return this man's wife, you will live. And the text actually refers us to Job 42.8, which says, Now, therefore... Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. God is calling Abimelech to offer a sacrifice for his sins, to make right what he has done wrong. God is calling Abimelech to repent of his sins. He says, if you repent of your sin, you shall live. That means repentance doesn't look like saying, sorry, God, I sinned, sorry. Repentance means a turning from sin, which involves a change of heart, but it also holds purpose. It inevitably results in a change of behavior. God says, yes, Abimelech, you have sinned. Now that I have brought to mind why your heart should change, why you should change in this way, go and repent, change your behavior. Let your behavior be a reflection of the the heart change that I just gave you. Change of behavior is just as much repentance as confessing our sin. Uh, Repentance does not look like insanity. I sinned, forgive me. I sinned, forgive me. I sinned, forgive me. God will call us to full repentance, to change our behavior. 
And then he even calls Abraham to repentance through Abimelech uh, in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. So he brings them all together. Think of a a huge room like the courts. There's just chairs everywhere. Um, And the men were very much afraid. And their fright is actually referenced back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like they know that that God is surely a powerful God. So they are rightfully afraid. But even though they're scared, um, Abimelech still caught up on Abraham's lie in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And can you not just hear God saying these words to Abraham? Why have you done this? Have I done, have I done something to you to make you not trust me? This is God calling to mind everything that Abraham should already know by now. This is God calling, to Ab- calling Abraham to repent as well. God will use whatever means necessary to bring to mind the conviction of our sins so that uh, when we realize it, we will confess of it and change our behavior from this sin against God to honoring God. How does God do this for you and I? His kindness. Romans 2.4 says, uh, just a little bit before Romans 2, 4 says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, ungodly things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is rich in kindness and self-control and patience and all of those things are to lead us to repentance. We should turn from sin and change our behavior because of the kindness of God. Uh, How does this kindness show up? In thousands of ways, surely, but in our passage, just two. Uh, The first is that God shows Abimelech what destruction will come if he does not repent, but the second is that God shows Abimelech what blessing will come if he does. Uh, In verse three, God is kind to even bring anything to Abimelech's mind. He could have just let Abimelech go on into worse sin and mess up the entire lineage of Abraham, but he doesn't. He's rich in kindness, and he shows Abimelech what will happen if he does not repent. He says, you... Mic check. Yeah, all right. We'll just cut that out of the audio. Um, Where were we? You will die. Okay. this happens, this happens for you and I, uh, God showing up in this way in a moment of temptation. Uh, when temptation comes, we have about five seconds to decide if we're going to choose to sin or not. Uh, and in that five seconds, God usually shows us exactly what will happen if we go down that road. For instance, when we have a selfish thought in an argument with our spouses, maybe they just said something that irks us just a little bit. And we live with the sinner, so we know how they fall short too. Um, And we have a list of things that we could go through. um, And we just let it slip. We said that one thing that should never be said in a million years. In that moment, we have five seconds to repent or keep going. And we find ourselves down this road mentally. And we think about the fact, if we keep this going, they're probably going to respond poorly. That'll probably lead to a bigger fight where no one's listening. Everybody's yelling. Uh, Things get slammed or broken. We just hope and pray that the neighbors have their TVs up loud enough so that they can't hear us. But taking, taking us down that road mentally is God's grace to us. He shows us how our sin is going to destroy us. 
But God will also show us in that same five seconds what blessing will come if we do repent. If I turn from God right here and right now, I know that I have grace waiting for me that will heal me and sustain me. I know that if I repent of my sins to my spouse here in this moment, things might not be better right here, right now, but at some point things can be forgiven of because we've talked about it. I'm obeying God's command to repent and thus and I'm going to live. And so God keeps us from sin. That's his kindness to us. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And if we look at the equation, it makes no sense why we should not turn. God is kind to lead us into more of his kindness. Acts 3.19 again. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God in his rich and abundant and abundant kindness will call us to repent of our sins. He's like, life is not over there. Life is right here. I will refresh you. Whether we are a polytheistic unbeliever or a man of 30 some odd years of following God by faith, he'll call us to repent of our sins. So now the question becomes how? All right, we know that God has called us to repentance. How do we do that? Um, What's a great question. Let's take a look at uh, the second one, how not to repent. If you look at verse 11. Abraham said, and so this is just after he's called to repentance through Abimelech, Abraham goes down the road that we should not go down. Uh, He excuses his sin. He wants to explain why he sinned. He wants to prove why he should not have trusted in uh, in God in this moment. Like, anybody think that's going to go well? Uh, Is that a smart argument to get into, like the God of the universe? Uh, But he says, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. He just said, you guys don't have any morals. He assumes that no one has a fear of the Lord here in Gerar. And so that must mean that no one would turn away from evil. Again, going back to our imagination to put ourselves in his sandals, like it isn't totally implausible. These excuses make some sense. And they're even verifiable if you look at verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. She really was indeed his half-sister. So he's not totally lying. This was not yet banned by God. Um, but I, I honestly like to think it's because he was tired of Abraham's shenanigans with using this excuse. So he's like, okay, I'm making this wrong. Um, and then probably just the most preposterous of his excuses come in verse 3. Um, not 3, 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which you come, say of me, he is my brother. He just blamed God. God caused me to wander from my father's house. Like, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. Um, So if you think about it, it's really God's fault. Um, But here's the thing. Sin always leads us to more sin. And it always has and it always will. And sin, if if left unrepented of, leads us into excusing it. Like, sin literally blinds us. Uh, In high school, I was starting goalkeeper on the varsity soccer team. Like, for all four years, I was kind of really proud of that. But I was a, I was a prideful turd. Um, like, I would save, I would save some shots. Uh, like, you know, they would be pretty good shots or whatever, but I'd save them. Um, and I would just laugh at the kids who took the shot. And my, my favorite thing to say was, uh, like, I didn't have anything else other than this, but I was like, wow, you really hit that one with your purse. Um, and it would make some of these kids so mad, and I loved it. Um, but I hated it, however, when a kid would score on me, and he would come back with his snarky remarks, 
Um, and, but I, I always had like a, my one-liner back to them because I was just, I had two lines. Um, unless they were a big guy and I just usually left it alone. I was like, oh, you're all right. Um, <laughs> but I would say, uh, like when they would joke to me, I would say, why don't you go get a ladder and say that to my face? Um, but, but every single goal, every single goal that, I, that was scored on me, every single time, every single ride home, I would think of excuses as to why I didn't save it. Well, I was too cold. Um, I was too tired. I had already taken like 200 shots on goal. It's not my fault. Uh, the defense was terrible. The ball didn't start here. It started over there in the middle. Um, I slipped. The grass was too icy. My cleat was untied. I had too many carb loads. Um, I was just excusing everything I did wrong to make it look like it wasn't my fault. Like I had nothing to take ownership of. No, it's everybody else's fault. And people in the Bible do this too. Like Adam offered his excuse at the garden as he pointed his finger at Eve. Aaron let the blame for the golden calf fall on his people. Saul tried to excuse his unlawful sacrifice on the technicality that Samuel was late. Excuses have been wreaking havoc since the very beginning. And the worst part is, on any given day, we don't even realize that we're making excuses. It's like poison gas in the air. I did that because, well, I was in a hurry. Uh, They were yelling, so I was yelling, of course. I was right. They weren't listening. We have to realize this when it comes to our repentance. Situations do not cause us to sin. We choose to sin. Work may put stress on us, but we choose to cut the corners. Our wife may unfairly criticize us, but we choose to respond with passive aggression or aggression. Traffic may be heavy, but we choose to respond to others with angry outbursts all the way to work. Circumstances do not force us to sin. They actually help to reveal our sin. And not only do excuses uh, let sin slowly suck the life out of us, they rob us of the joy that God wants to give us. He wants to deliver us and cleanse us of our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every time we dismiss our sin or gloss over the fact that we are sinful, every time we puff up our chests in pride, every time we think that someone else's sin is worse, when we do not admit our sin, we miss the grace that God has tailor-made to cover our sins. God really does have the grace to meet every failure, but it starts by receiving that grace by repentance. I actually didn't clean the kitchen today because I struggle with selfishness. I went to that website again to satisfy the ugly lust in my heart. I got angry last night because I put my interests ahead of yours. I am weak and sinful and humbled by God. Abraham, for all intents and purposes, shows us uh, how not to repent. But God doesn't leave us in the dark there. He also gives us an example to follow in a man who at this point is not even a believer. Uh, So God shows us how to repent. Take a look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So Abimelech here just lavished Abraham with gifts and sacrifices and an offering to right his wrong. This is the change of behavior that came with with God changing his heart. And not only that, like he takes it a step further and he honors Sarah in verse 16. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, which was like 400 would have been a mortgage. Um, He honors Sarah in front of everyone. Why? Well, he even says it. So that when people look at you, they will still see you as innocent. 
before everyone, right in front of everyone here, you are vindicated. You are innocent. Abimelech shows us how to repent. This unbelieving, polytheistic man, he shows us how to repent. God shows up to him in his sin, and Abimelech doesn't offer any excuses whatsoever. He goes right away the next morning and changes his behavior and bears the fruit of a changed heart. John the Baptist he had just come out of the wilderness where he was eating locusts and honey. Um, and he starts to call just all people to be baptized. And he says in Luke 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become uh, level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping repentance. He says all this because he knows these people. He knows that they acknowledge their sin, but they make no real change in their behavior. It's the same old story over and over again, and he even says it right in the next few verses. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I don't align with this guy. He did not repent well either in this story. You really, um, you really and truly are his children in this moment. Uh, but it's not a good thing. You use that as an excuse for why you sin and go on unchanged. You cannot say that you were in the family and still remain in sin like one outside the family. Those of us in the family, we turn from our sin, and the fruit that comes to bear shows exactly what is happening inside of us. It should. So what does this look like? Psalm 51 doesn't even mention the word repentance but I think it's the perfect picture of it. Because what happened was, uh, everything that just happened with David, he was, um, had the whole thing with uh, Bathsheba. It was crazy. Uh, Nathan comes up to him and he says, uh, hey, here's this thing. This person did all these things. What do you think we should do about that? Um, David's like, well, put the guy to death. And Nathan says, it was you. And then it, out of that, he writes Psalm 51, and this is what repentance looks like. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then he moves to the walking it out part of repentance. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is repentance. A broken and contrite heart and spirit, a brokenness that does not trust in itself, but in the strength and the power of God. A broken heart is the only heart that can be put back together. You can't fix a heart that's good. That's why God is able to heal him in verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Acts 3.19, again, says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is what just happened to Abimelech. He was healed because he had something to heal. Abraham owned no sin, and so he had no refreshing that came to him. Why would he need it? He seems to be fine on his own. He shifts the blame and sin onto other people. It's apparently their sin that needs to be covered, their sin that needs to have grace for. But Abimelech, the polytheistic guy, owned his poverty and his sinfulness and utter lack of ability, and he came with a broken heart, a humbled, uh, a humbled heart, and he counted Abraham and Sarah more significant than himself. Whether or not they actually were, it didn't matter. And he left his heart there for God to restore it. Uh, if I were to ask you what the most disgusting animal you can think of, you would probably answer rat, skunk. Or can anybody think of anything else that's more gross than those? A leech. A kid? Somebody say a kid? <laughs> um, well, uh, what if... Well, well, let's not do the kid one. Uh, let's just stick with, let's stick with rat. rat. Rats are pretty gross. I think we can all agree with that. Uh, but what if God came down to earth to dwell as a human and he called you a rat? In front of your friends and family, he just shows up at your house and he says, you're a rat. You see, if you were sitting here 2,000 years ago, the answer would have been dogs. Dogs, were, now, they are great. Like We have two dogs, Bear and Bella. They're the cutest little things. Um, but back in the day, they were the most disgusting, filthy, low-life, stinky, smelly, most gross animals in the world. They would eat trash and dirt and mud and feces, um, and they looked a little something like this. Isn't that scary? Is it still behind me? You can... <laughs> um, well, one, one day, uh, a Canaanite woman, she comes out and she's crying out to Jesus. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, uh, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. We're tired of this woman, Jesus. Just send her away. But he answered the men uh, with an earshot of the woman. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Essentially, I came only to help those who have faith in me. But she came to his face, knelt down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, and this is going to seem cold. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus just said, I'm not going to help a disgusting animal like you. Jesus just called this woman a dog. What in the world is happening here? Jesus was leading this woman to exactly where she needed to be. Jesus wanted to 
air out her shame so that he might be able to cover it for her. Jesus just brought this woman to the end of her rope so that she might have nothing left to hope or to trust in but him. And the woman says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She owns it. She says, I am a dog, but I just want the crumbs. And then Jesus answered, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This woman has come needy and vulnerable, and she's admitting her shame. She has nothing to lose. She owns her shame. She admits her poverty. She knows she deserves nothing, yet she pleads for favor. She doesn't give God a million reasons why she should be helped. She doesn't try to say, well, look at how cool I am here, and and look at all these good things I do in all these areas of my lives. I I deserve this help. She simply says, Lord, help me. And God says, great is your faith. This woman came to Jesus. Jesus called her a dog. And she said, yeah, that's me for sure. I am am a dog left unto myself. Help me. What if this is what Jesus has done for you and I? What if Jesus brings us to this point in our lives where we have no more rope moments, where we feel like complete dogs, where we have nothing else so that we will actually trust him? And what if Jesus called us dogs? Well, he actually calls us worse. He calls us corpses. The, the call of repentance is a call to life, and that really must mean only one thing, that right now we're dead. Left unto ourselves, we are nothing but a corpse. We cannot do anything to make ourselves come to life. But notice the grace to both of the men in our passage. God comes to Abimelech, shows him his dogness, his deadness, and he says, come to me, I am your perfection. Now that you have this perfection that I've just given to you, come to me. And Abraham is still in the fold of God, no matter how poorly he repented or even did not repent, because he was already made righteous too. He was already made perfect. Do we go on sinning without repentance? By no means. You won't find life there. Life is found in repentance, and repentance comes from God stepping into our lives and our stories to make it so. So how does this happen? We know that this is a refreshing thing. We know that God will blot out our sins, but how does it happen? The same way it does in this passage. God calls you and I to repentance through a broken heart that we give to a prophet who comes into our lives and kingdom. The broken heart that we give to someone who stands between us and God, who will pray for us, who on the basis of, we will be healed and forgiven and loved and cleansed and cherished. It's the broken heart that we give to Jesus. It's all Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. We bring our sin and our shame and our ugly and our rotting flesh and bones and we say, Lord, help me. And the promise from God is my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, not in strength. The reason we repent is because we are not perfect. But in our repentance from that imperfection, we are once and for all covered by the grace of Jesus. By the perfection of his life, his death, his resurrection, we gain our lives by giving up this life. 
We repent because when we repent, we own the deep reality that we are unable to save ourselves and that we need a Savior. We repent because when we repent, we own our weakness and through our faith in Christ as our only strength, we gain it. We repent because if we do, we gain our lives. So as a family, uh, let's all repent yet again. We're going to come to the table for the Lord's Supper together. Uh, But as we do this, we are symbolically taking on the body and the blood that God gives us that has covered this sin. So for all of us in the room, um, if we can just take a minute before we go and grab the elements and just say, God, I repent of my sin. I turn. And if you're a believer and you have forsaken your sin by repentance from it um, and to Jesus in belief, then you're welcome to the table as Abraham surely was even in his sin because it was not based on his ability either. It was all Jesus. It is all Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you are not a believer or if you are in unrepentant sin, trust in Jesus as your hope and your covering today. Repent here and now. There is a refreshment that will come to you with the, and that will wash you of your sins and you will walk out of these doors this morning with the weight of that shame on Jesus. So for all of us, uh, here is our prayer. Father, thank you for, the great, for your grace to step into my story by Jesus, to show me my sin and to show me where life truly is. Empower me to repent daily and continually that I may stay under your grace. Bring me low that I may be brought up by you. So just for all of us, we'll take our time, we'll grab the elements, we'll bring them back to our seat, and we'll take them here in a minute together. We repent. We own our sin and our imperfection because it is only the shame that is owned that will be covered. So we bring it all to light. How do we know there's no more shame left for us to bear. Jesus took it all on himself at the cross. He gave us life on the night when he was betrayed, when he took some bread, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the the story of Genesis 20, for the truth of Genesis 20, for the truth of, of the woman coming to Jesus as a dog that there was nothing there was no shame left for her there was no shame left for Abimelech or Abraham and it's all because of your grace would you humble our hearts that if any time we do obey it is by your grace it is you who kept us from sinning against you would you bring us low that you may lift us up 
All of that, God, is, is work that is hard for us, but it is work that you do very easily. Would you show up on our behalf yet again this morning? And would you cover our shame? We thank you and we love you and we bless you and we give you all of the praise and the glory and the honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen.